Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. With the holidays just around the corner, now is the time to order holiday cards for family and friends. Only this year, why not create custom holiday photo cards quickly, easily, and affordably at simplytoimpress.com. Simplytoimpress.com is your holiday photo card headquarters with thousands of unique Christmas cards and other designs to choose from. All you do is upload your family photos, personalize the text, and you're done. Simplytoimpress.com prints your cards on your choice of premium card stock in just a few days and rushes them straight to your door. Maybe that's why the New York Times wire cutter named Simply to Impress their favorite photo card service. They even offer foil cards and hundreds of great holiday card designs for your business, too. Place your order today to save 30% and get free shipping. Just enter promo code DEAL at checkout. Save big on holiday photo cards today using promo code DEAL at simplytoimpress.com. That's simplytoimpress.com. activities but once I got out and now a year into that experience I just I can't see myself now returning to the cold I know it's bad it's a bad mindset to have but I guess it's a good problem I, I like visiting for the holidays but like I don't like cleaning up all the snow that comes along with it you know yeah. like it that looks the, nice but yeah that was the thing at Syracuse that started I, I just started yeah. to say I can't do this anymore when I was cleaning off my car every day, I was like, I just can't, I can't do it. I can't shovel anymore. I can't this. So yeah, I've enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah. There's like so many people that grew up out here that I'm friends with. They're like, man, I would love to have like four seasons. I'm like, you love it until you realize that it just sticks there and stays there. Your mood changes and then you got to clean all of it up. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly. No, it's pretty, pretty spot on, man. It's funny how that happens. I mean, for you, and I guess I'll just get right into it. Uh, when was the first time you actually like got in front of a mic, like your first gig in broadcasting? Because obviously, growing up around it, but what was the first uh, instance where you actually were not necessarily paid to do it, but like the first time you actually got in front of a mic and actually started putting your reel together? Yeah, Jack. You know, it's funny. I I never really did anything until I got to college. So. I guess you could say there was one time in high school where they tried to have me do some sort of interview with some of our players, but it didn't really count. It wasn't really anything put together or anything like that. So the first time that I really got in, in front of a microphone for real was in college. And so I, I went in like everybody else, having no experience, no tangible physical experience doing this and even knowing if I'd be any good at it. The difference for me was, like you said, growing up around it, seeing it, and uh, getting that curtain pulled so I could see how it worked in the scenes and what goes into all the preparation leading into a game or an event or a show or whatever it might be that you're getting ready for. Seeing how to treat everybody when you are at set of it, seeing just what it took on a day-to-day -day basis and the attitude you had to approach it with. So that I would say is the one thing that I took away and I felt like I had that advantage, but 
I had never done anything. I had never uh, turned the red light on and said, okay, go. Right. That, was, that wasn't in the arsenal yet. Wow. So when you first started out, I mean, being around it, so like you said, like you had that curtain pulled early on. You knew how somewhat how things operated, how, how to sound on the air. So when you first get that first opportunity in college at Syracuse, you look back at that a few years ago and think, man, this is God awful, or do you feel like you were prepared going into it? It's well, I think that happens just in general. I yeah. mean, you'll see when, when you're done with school, you'll see how quickly this happens because I, I listen back to my first game this year, or I guess it's last year now. I get I, this whole COVID situation oh, yeah. completely ruined my sense of time. Yeah, I have no time idea. Right. I, I don't know what day it is anymore. I don't know what this, that. So, but I guess my first game, my first regular season game, let's say, as the Clippers announcer, I'll listen back to that and say, this is God awful. When in reality, it wasn't. It's just that now I've been much better. I've improved. And that's how it should be. That's, how, that's what I tell everybody who's younger, I guess, than me or anybody who asks me for advice is no matter how old you are, you should always be striving to improve. And that's something that my dad had passed down to me and, and many of his mentors have passed down to him. Something they preach at Syracuse for sure. But it's very true. I don't care how many years of experience you have. I don't care where you are on the the totem pole of broadcasting in the world and the country. But if you're out there, you should be striving to do this broadcast better than the previous one. Right. That's been my goal ever since I first got to Syracuse and did start doing on-air work. So, yes, absolutely. I've watched some old stuff of mine in college or listened back to some old stuff of mine in college and be like, what was I thinking? How, how did you feeling good about my performance? But that's natural, and that's exactly where you want to be, especially at a young age and just cracking and entering into this crazy, zany business. What was like the biggest blunder that you had early on in your time at Syracuse? Because like me personally, just like little things like messing up. Like I think I said sacrifice blunt instead of sacrifice bunt one time on a <laughs> softball broadcast. And it actually yeah. happened before 20 days. So they, they like let it slide technically as like a joke. Um, I could have played it off like you meant to do it then. Exactly. You could have been like, you see how clever I am? You see this? The IQ, man. The IQ. Yeah, you have I'm not all golden hair. I, I, I've got more underneath. <laughs> so do you have any of those that you remember that kind of stand out to you as like, oh, man, remember when I said that? <laughs> I, I don't know about at Syracuse. There was, there was one time at Syracuse where I was doing an update at the, the student run station, and a friend was in there and messing with me during the update, and I just started laughing. So you've got those types of moments, which was good. We, we started doing that to see if we could really get through and test each other's boundaries. So that was, I guess, one where I just I couldn't finish the update because I was laughing so hard. Yeah. So that, that's <laughs> certainly up there. I, I had some even this year with the Clippers where there was one that, that still sticks with me in Boston. It was a big play late. The game was, it was the last game before the All-Star break, and we've been on a huge road trip leading into it. And I'm not trying to make any excuses, but it just right. gives you a little perspective of what the lead-up of all of it was. Your but, side of the story, yep. Yeah, it was a double overtime game in Boston, and the, the location in which they put the visiting and the home radio in Boston, it's literally the corner of behind the basket in the corner. Yeah. It's so hard to describe, but you're literally – there are parts of the court you can't see because it's being blocked by the basket. And so big play down the stretch, the, the Clippers are looking to tie and I'm just in the moment 
And I, I called the play well. The problem was Marcus Morris is on our team. Marcus Smart's on the other team. And so in that quick moment, I called Marcus Morris, Marcus Smart. And it was like the biggest play of the game because he ties it and down the stretch in the fourth quarter. So that one really sticks with me and probably will my whole career. And I'll, I'll never forget that. And it just, I guess, reminds you to, to, to really be careful in those moments in particular, because those are the big ones. Those are the ones people remember. Yeah. And so for me, that's one that I can't get back and one that I'll learn from moving forward. Did you realize it right away or did it have to sink in after a few minutes? Because you can't really like correct yourself unless you do it like right away, right? Yeah, and sometimes the, you do catch yourself right away and you can correct yourself pretty yeah. quickly and seamlessly. That was something that was taught to me pretty early in college when uh, in between my freshman and sophomore year, I had just gone and shadowed some places in New York City and one of them happened to be WFAN, which is where my dad started his career right. and a legendary update anchor. John Minko was there and he told me, listen, I mess up sometimes. I, I've been doing this for 30 plus years, but everybody messes up. It's the way that you carry yourself afterward that matters. And so he said, sure, I might say a wrong name, but instead of saying, ah, I mean, blah, I'm just going to say, let's say he meant to say Mark Sanchez and he says Mark Price. I don't know. I'm choosing right. two random guys. So he says Mark Price or Mark Sanchez, excuse me, like just a seamless one. It, it, most people don't even know the difference. They won't even tell that you messed up. So I, I apply the same thinking into play-by-play. -play. If I can recognize it in the moment, sure, I'll correct it. But that one, it, the heat of the moment was too large. The, the weight of it was too impressive. And so I just kind of kept going. And I think I did realize it, but it, was, it wasn't a moment that you could stop to correct yourself and, and keep it flowing easily enough. It was too big. So in, in that sense, having uh, only a few years of experience before this gig, how overwhelming was it, that whole experience, getting that call, uh, getting to be the radio voice of the Clippers? Because again, what, you were 22 when you got the call, 21? Yes. So I was 22. It was the end of my senior year at wow. Syracuse. And it, it just came out of the blue. I didn't expect it. And basically what happened was I had a professor who a couple months prior had asked me, to send her some of my basketball stuff, my best basketball stuff, and didn't yeah. tell me what it was for. And I said, can you give me some more info? And she said, no. I said, what? She said, Fair no. Enough. <laughs> yeah, send me some basketball stuff. I said, okay. So I spent the week, sent it to her, and didn't hear anything for a little while. She had asked me then to send her a resume and a, a bio, but couple weeks, several weeks go by, maybe even month plus, almost two months. And at the end of March, I'd just gotten back from the NCAA tournament with Syracuse. They're in Salt Lake City. And so I'd flown back and forth across the country and was driving to a radio show I had been doing every Monday night and just got a call there. And it was a number I didn't recognize. It was from Los Angeles. So I, I picked it up and it was, this, it was just this voice I didn't recognize, didn't know. Said hello. This is uh, Nick Davis from Fox Sports West Prime Ticket. Is this Noah? I said, Yeah. Said, Well, uh, I'm I'm sure you're aware, but we're looking to replace Ralph Lawler, who's been with us for 40 years at the Clippers, and um, your name has come up, and we'd like to fly you out to interview and audition. This is for the TV job. This is for wow. the radio job. So I was like. I'm looking around because I was expecting somebody to like pop out behind me and, and say that this was all a joke. If we're being honest, I thought I was being punked. 
I don't, I don't even know if punked is still on TV anymore, but I thought that I was being punked. Is Ashton Kutcher coming out? No, nobody came out. So they were being serious and talked to my agent. They organized the details and within a week or two, I was flying out to LA to interview and audition for this job out of nowhere. And so I, I went and the interview I thought went very well. The audition I thought went very well. And I took a red eye back to, to make it back for some classes because <laughs> I was still in school at the time. And uh, the next week or within a few days, my agent reaches out and says, hey, Steve Ballmer wants to meet with you, the owner of the team, wow. who's notoriously known around, I don't care yeah. just about sports. If you're a sports fan, you know who Steve Ballmer is. Yeah. And if you're an unsports fan, there's a chance you know who Steve Ballmer is. So I flew out to Seattle the next week. I met with him for 90 minutes. And as I was leaving, I, I've told this before, this was my drop the mic moment in my head, at least. I looked him in the eye, said, Mr. Bomber, I appreciate the time. And I want to let you know that if I get the job, the Clippers will be my life. And he said, good to know. He literally controls the elevator from his desk, sends it down for me. It was, it was a whole bizarre. It was a weird black mirror type of scene wow. where he, <laughs> they punch in numbers and the elevator appears. It was bizarre, but I left there feeling like, you know, I gave it my all. If nothing else, my whole mentality through the whole process was if nothing else, I'm just excited that I got the experience. Yeah. Young. And now I know what, what this is like. I know what interviewing for an NBA broadcasting job is like. So I took another red eye back. Uh, a couple weeks later, I graduate and I flew the day after graduation to Chicago for some NBA events, the, the G League Elite Camp and the NBA Draft Lottery. So I was there. I flew back to Syracuse. A day or two later, I packed up my stuff and drove it all back to my childhood home in northern New Jersey, as you know quite well, Jack. And I just thought, okay, I'm just going to see what happens here and wait for this call, which I didn't necessarily expect to be going in my favor or not. I didn't really know what to expect at that point. I, I was pretty confident that I, I did well in all of the aspects that they asked me to do. I, I thought that I, I showed them my personality. I showcased why I, I'd be good and a good choice for the job. And I remember literally the morning that I did get the call, which was two days after I arrived back home, my dad was talking to me, said, you know, I was thinking about this and I think it's a very distinct possibility, but and their radio guy has been there for a long time and they might just move him up and then offer you the radio job. I said, yeah, maybe. He goes, would you take it? I go, yeah. He goes, well, I'd be prepared for it. He had no knowledge. He was just speculating based on his years of experience. Sure enough, yeah. Yeah, sure enough, that night <laughs> I get the call from our team president, Gillian Zucker, and she says, just wanted to let you know we've gone a different direction on the TV side, but can open up the radio job and we'd love for you to take it to do it and we'll give you an opportunity to do a variety of things alongside with it but we really want you to do it she said so take take the weekend i'm thinking in my head weekend i can tell you right now right but take the i played it cool i did i was i was smooth <laughs> i said well i appreciate you thinking of me and believing in me and she said yeah take the weekend call me back on sunday let me know so that's what i did and so yeah i, I arrived and Sure, it was a momentous and I'm trying to think of the right word. I wouldn't say pressure was there, 
yeah. I think that for me, I already put enough pressure on myself to just go out and, and do well. But my whole mentality is if I do all the things that got me to this point already, I'm in a good spot. And what I told you before, I'm just going to keep getting better as the year goes on. And so I, I think I may have even said in my interview with them at, the, at that point, like, you know, I'm going to be at a certain point when you first get me, if you hire me, but by the end of the year, it's going to be night and day and the improvements are going to be vast. And I'm only going to improve and grow alongside this team. And that's what I feel like I did in year one so far. And I'm excited to start year two. Wow. So kudos to you for actually answering the call. Cause if a random number came up on my phone, like I, I usually just assume that it's spam. I was close. I've been getting a lot of spam calls. I still do. Is there a way, because it's not like one spam call. I get several spam calls, but there, the reason I picked that one up was I hadn't got one from Los Angeles and I had known in the back of my head that my professor's contacts were out West. So I said, and again, this had been weeks later. So it was really just a, okay, maybe just in case type of thing. And thank God I did because who knows, I get, they would have left a message, I guess, if they really were interested, but I'm glad that I picked up in the moment because I don't want to leave that to chance. Wow. And you do feel like this first season went well, you know, like Marcus Smart comment aside, Marcus Smart call aside. <laughs> yeah. Went yeah. Well for you. Like, I know like everybody's their own worst critic, but like, yeah, I'm sure you got yeah. a lot of positive feedback. Yeah. I mean, look, anybody who's given me praise, I really appreciate it. And I know that I still have a long way to go, but I'm, I'm happy in the position that I'm in right now. And the, the steps I've already taken in this career. And I think that I put myself based on the work I've put in and based on the games I've banked and the experience that I now have collected over the, the last several years that I feel good. Yeah. I, I think that year one went very well and it's only a springboard into what's next. And yeah. I'm excited, like I said, for year two with this team, because uh, there's a lot of excitement and rightfully so. I think that they're doing a lot of really good stuff this off season. So yeah, everything went about as well as I could have asked for. And the people were really welcoming and just made the transition easy. So you, you go through this entire season and then towards the end, this is kind of that, that jump into getting the call for the, the French Open game. Because you, you're a tennis guy yourself, and that whole experience, I'm sure, was nuts given everything else going on in the world, right? Because like that was, this past summer was just nuts with everything going on. That was like the peak of, uh, of the whole pandemic and the lockdown and everything. And then you also had the Clippers playoff run going on at the same time, and unfortunately, you guys had the early exit there. Uh, how did that all line up for you? Like, were you able to uh, say yes to that gig right away or did you kind of have to wait it out? And how was that whole experience like? Yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, it's, a good, it's a good glimpse into how some of this stuff works. So the yeah. Clippers, when they offered me the job and they, they didn't have to do this, but I'm incredibly thankful and gracious that they did. They said, we're, we're giving you a deal where when we're playing and when we have stuff for you to do, that's the priority. Yeah. We're your number one. But when we're not, you've got an off day or off season, we're cool with you going and doing some other stuff if that's interesting to you. Yeah. And so I said, absolutely. And one of those things was Tennis Channel. Tennis Channel actually reached out to me before I had gotten the Clipper job. Okay. They reached out by email and said, we've seen your stuff. We know you. And my dad's worked for them in the past. And so obviously that helps knowing the, the relationship there, but they had said, we want to hire you based off of you. 
and we're in LA. We know that you're not, so we understand, but it's more of a freelance position where you can come in when you can come in. We'll fly you out. We'll put you up. And that was that. And so I hadn't answered it yet. And this was only a few days maybe before the Clippers called. And so the Clippers call. And so now in my head, I'm saying, wait, I'm going to be in LA anyway. And tennis channels located in LA. That means maybe I'm even more valuable. And that's exactly what ends up happening is because I'm out here when they need somebody to fill in last minute or something like that, I can be here and I can be there for them. And so that's been really helpful for me. And they've been great. Tennis Channel has been absolutely phenomenal with me and and how they've utilized me and treated me and welcomed me in, even to somebody who's not 12 months a year, 365 days a year, seven days a week in tennis. You know, I, I have to focus on the NBA and basketball. So sometimes I can't quite keep up as much as I might like with the tennis world. And so I have to almost play catch up whenever I have these events. And so what ended up happening with the French Open, it's funny because my dad had done the French Open for a decade plus now. He's been doing it every year. And every year I've asked him, can I come with you? And he said, no, no, no. Finally, last year I graduated from college. I'd gotten a call about the Clipper job. And we had planned that my mom's sister and I would go with him to Paris for a few days for the French Open. And I was pumped. I was so excited. And at the last minute, I got asked to work at Sirius XM on those days. And so I I said yes to that. I thought it was more important, which it was. And that's something that I'm sure you've heard before, Jack, and a lot of young broadcasters in college will hear, always say yes. Always say yes, whatever it is, because right. any opportunity can lead to something else. You have no idea what it could lead to, and you have no idea what happens. Like someone might be listening. Someone might see you. So that was always important to me, and they'd been treating me well over there as well. So I, I said, yeah, of course. And so last minute, I had to cancel on the Paris trip, and my thought was keep doing good work, and one day maybe you'll get to go as an employee like my dad has. And so this year... We get into the playoffs, obviously, with the Clippers, and it's the bubble. I'm calling all the games out of a studio in Los Angeles, so I wasn't in the bubble, which helps to, I guess, provide a strength for my case of doing stuff with Tennis Channel or whoever else. And the people at Tennis Channel reached out to me basically saying, we'd love to have you. We're going to Paris. We would love to have you come with us. We know that your priority is with the Clippers. So we'll, we'll ask you to come on the basis that the Clippers aren't still playing. They said, we know it's unlikely because the cutoff would have been if they got into the conference finals, I couldn't go. If they had gotten past the second round, basically. Right. And so when they went up 3-1 in the second round, the people at Tennis Channel reached out to me saying, oh, well, looks like you're not coming. It's okay. You know, we'll get you in at some point. And uh, we're glad that the Clippers are still playing. I go, don't jinx it. Sure enough, it got jinxed. But I can't blame them. They're not the only ones who texted me. I, I got so many texts after they went up 3-1 saying yeah. congratulations. And I said, what are you doing? What, don't you people know how this works? So I blame all those people who did text me and say congratulations because, come on, you can't. It's, no. like, it's like saying somebody has a no-hitter. You can't do that. You can't do that. So anyway, I, I'm not going to get too heated about it. So eventually they, they fall in game seven of the second round. And so it opened my schedule up and uh, it was as much pain as uh, we felt within the organization for the few days following that loss. It was, it was a good enough consolation prize for me to be able to go to a place I'd never been 
the experience was strange because of COVID, because of how uh, the city was set up. And it, just full disclosure, as much as I loved my experience there, of course I would have preferred the Clippers to keep playing. That's my priority and my emotional priority probably too because you're so invested with the team that you cover on a daily basis that you want to see them succeed. And seeing them hit a road bump is, it's tough. So always I'm going to prefer that the Clippers are playing. Always I'm going to prefer that they're successful in doing their thing. But if it's going to end the way that it did, the fact that I got to leave the country and kind of put that stuff behind for a few weeks was, was pretty cool. And that whole situation, like I said, like in the middle of a pandemic, how long is that flight to France? Because I can't imagine that that was an easy, easy uh, a trip for you. No, what 11 hours, entire 12 hours back. Yeah, it was, it was basically a full day. 11 hours there, 12 hours back. Um, but you know what? It, it was good because the plane was not very crowded. It was, it was pretty empty. And I got one of those where I had a singular seat. Okay. So I didn't have anybody next to me. I didn't have anybody within a few rows. On the way there, I did, but it was all the people on our Tennis Channel crew. And because I left a few days earlier than most, I was the only one going back at the time. And so it was a pretty empty plane definitely going back. What I did is I downloaded a bunch of stuff. I read a, a little bit. I'm a big fan of books. I'm a big fan of movies and TV. So I decided to be productive as much as I can. And on the way there, I slept for, I think, five or six hours because I tried to time it out with the, the time change and the time difference. So I did. On the way back, that was where the, the issues began. The jet lag was real. It was really real. I'd never experienced it like that because you have to think about it this way. They're six hours ahead over there. Is it six hours? Yeah, they're six hours ahead over there. So I left at what was, I guess my flight was pretty early. It was Let's say it was 9 a.m., local in Paris, 12 hours back, that would get you to 9 p.m., but subtract six hours, it was three. So it was three o'clock when, when I got back to L.A. It was even, I think, a little earlier, but it felt like it was almost 10. So I was all screwed up at that point. I'd never felt that way. It took me, I think, four or five days to finally get wow. reactivated to Pacific time. So that was that was the one negative I would say because I did not feel I did not feel well for a few days. I can imagine. And did they were they strict about the the mask wearing on the flight in general? Oh yeah, uh, yes. Not only hours. The, the mask wearing. I'm somebody who has a lot of masks. I, I'm I was raised by a mom who worked in the fashion industry, and my sister is yeah. is very fashion centric. So I, I'm I guess I've been conditioned and programmed to care about my clothes and uh, have a somewhat of a clothes and shoe addiction. And okay. that has, that has transferred to masks as well. I think I have 25 or 30 different ones and I just like to rotate them through different patterns, different graphic designs. And so I wore one of my normal cloth masks to the, to the flight. And as I'm about to get on, they're taking temperatures. They go, you can't wear that. I said, what? They go, we require that you wear a surgical mask. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I don't have one. They go, we do. Here you go. <laughs> and so they had, they had surgical masks for all these people, and I had to wear that for the entirety of the flight, and I could not take it off unless I was eating or drinking. That was it. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> very convenient that they had one for you, though. Well, they, they had to have known that I'm the only and I wasn't the only one who showed up with you know, a cloth mask because those to me are more comfortable, but 
it, it all worked out. It really did. <laughs> you have a bunch of different graphic uh, masks. Like, yeah, I've got a few. I've got a few. I know that I, one that I got a lot of compliments on in Paris from the, the TC crew was my Sublime mask, the band. Yeah, I yeah. The, I got the logo right on the, the front of the mask. I'm a big fan. Um, I got. I just have a bunch of random images. I have one of Biggie, uh, one of one of those uh, Starry Night, the the painting. I've got a variety of stuff. Interesting. And you're a big shoe guy, like you said. I was listening to the uh, the Rising Stars podcast with uh, Evan uh, Stockton. I, I was yeah. I was uh, listening into your your Jordan addiction. I, I've actually so I have these here. These are like the Jordan 4 Green Glows. I've been trying yeah. to pop these shoes, and I think what are these? These are also fours. They're like Thunders, I think they're called. Well, I, just, I just got another pair of fours literally on the way right now, the Cool Grays, which I had been looking for uh -huh. for a while. I finally found a low enough price that I felt like I could pull the trigger. Uh, the four is my favorite shoe. The three and the four, I guess, are like one and one A. Um, but those, are, those two are nice. Those two, I, I respect that. I respect the choices. I, I have a problem. I really do. I mean, I, I just got another pair of Air Force Ones, too, so I have five of those now. Like, there's no reason I need five of those. Absolutely not. But um, what can I say? I, I guess it provides me joy. And right now, especially, I think, during the, the COVID stuff, yeah. when you get bored, or at least when I get bored, I start looking at stuff online. I go into a rabbit hole, and then before I know it, I've ordered something new. And I'm like, ah, no, I didn't, ah. You know, you feel it. You're like, ah, no, uh, okay, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to accept it. So, yeah, no, it, it's good and bad. And out here in L.A. especially, shoes are a big deal and clothes are a big deal. Everything appearance-wise is a big deal. So I guess I kind of fit into that culture naturally. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and on, on that topic of kind of just uh, trying to be yourself but at the same time trying to prove yourself professionally, I think a lot of people in general have this problem of, balancing, you know, happiness with also trying to, again, prove yourself professionally, trying to be happy both professionally and personally. Uh, you being as young as you are already in the industry, how do you think that you've handled that? And how do you think you've balanced that thus far? That's incredibly important. I'm glad you brought that up, Jack, because a lot of people I don't think realize how important the keeping your mental sanity aspect of this business is. And that's true in college, especially. That was something that I really stressed to myself and I stressed to anybody who asks again for advice about the college experiences. So many people get so caught up in, I've got to be doing this, this, and this, because they might see somebody else their age doing this, this, and this. Yeah. Just because one person does it one way doesn't mean the other person has to do it the same. That's the crazy part about this business in particular is there's not one singular path. Everybody has their own path on their own journey, which leads me to one of my favorite books, which is The Alchemist. I don't know if you've ever read that or heard of it. It's, I would highly recommend it to anybody. It's a short, quick read, but you get a lot out of it. And basically what you learn is the guy is on his personal journey. So you have to figure out what's your personal journey and you can't compare it to anybody else. And I think that's the biggest key in keeping your mental sanity in this industry is not worrying about what somebody else is doing next to you. Just, just do you. And if you do you and you're happy and you're positive energy in people's lives and people want to be around you and you're nice and kind and thoughtful, 
to me, then things are eventually going to work out. Might take longer than you'd expect. Might take shorter than you'd expect. Or it might take exactly how long as you expected. But the point is, when you focus on you and do what you're supposed to do with most of your power, the best of your abilities to go out and put the the best product out there and your personality out there, and just yeah, great question. You know, I think that the biggest thing is just remember how important it is to be yourself and don't worry about how people view you, which is so hard right now with social media and seeing other people's lives and all that invasiveness, just screw it and be you and be, if it makes you happy, like a general rule in my life is if it's going to make me happy, which I guess is counterproductive with the shoe thing and the clothes thing, but you know what? Sometimes that makes me happy and it's going to put me in a good mood to go out and perform well, then so be it. And that's, that's the way I kind of view things. And on the subject of that, like you working as hard as you have to this point, your time at Syracuse, uh, breaking in with the radio, with the Clippers, and having a season like you had this past year, uh, do you, like, obviously growing up with your dad being one of the more esteemed and recognized voices in the sports industry, not just basketball, but, like, did you always feel like you kind of had a target on your back? Like, okay, he got to... uh, B because of A, or he he got this because of this, as opposed to you just, you know, busting your ass and being good at what you're doing. Did you ever feel like, A, you had a target on your back, or B, like, did it ever creep into your head that there's going to be those naysayers out there that I got this because of this? Of course, of course. I think that's, for anybody who goes into this field might be, there are going to be those doubts, those insecurities initially. And that was very real for me, going to Syracuse, where at first I didn't even think I wanted to go to Syracuse because that's where both my parents went. And I didn't want to be known as the the kid who just went there and and got in because of X, Y, or Z, when in reality I I felt like I had done so much work to get to the point and I had proven myself based on test scores or whatever else. And eventually it just goes back to realizing you can't worry about what other people feel can't worry about how they view you my whole mentality is okay maybe i did get an opportunity here or there because of the name because of my dad and i'm not naive i know that i understand that but once i do get that opportunity that's just cracking the door open i still have to go and bust that door down i have to go to work i have to go out and perform consistently And if I don't, I'm not going to keep the job. I'm not going to keep that opportunity because I didn't do enough to validate that. And so uh, whether or not this is fair, I I certainly felt early, and I don't know if it's true. I wouldn't say it is true, but at least I guess in in my mind, it got me to work additionally harder if I even needed to. But my whole mentality was I have to work twice as hard because of that to overcome that. So again, I don't know if that, if that was true or not, but it did force me into that method of okay, I'm just going to outwork you. I'm just going to outwork myself. I'm going to I'm going to out every time. And it's a mentality of good habit that I formed and hopefully will continue throughout my career, but I learned I would say at least midway through college that I can't run from my name. Right. There's no reason to be ashamed of where I came from, especially considering how well-respected my dad has become throughout his career, it's unfair to him for all the work that he put in as well. So once I, once I lost that stigma of it, of, well, people are just going to think this, this, and this, and stopped caring as much, 
I think that really opened up more avenues and opportunities for me to go and, and seize those opportunities. And once I did that, I was off and running. Right. And you explained that very well. Like you may have uh, uh, like had the opportunity there, but at the same time, like you have to prove yourself day in and day out to stay there. Like I'm sure the hook's a lot quicker too, if, if you didn't perform well. Yeah, I, I would, I would at least think so or hope so. I don't know. You know, I, I don't really know how the inner workings of all this goes. Like I said, I'm, I'm going to focus on me and hope that's enough at the end of the day. And hopefully I can continue to impress or, at least do my job at a, at a high level. And that's really all I'm going to care about. I'm not going to focus on what, what if someone, excuse me, what if somebody doesn't like how I said this or how I did this? You know, I was doing a tennis match recently where I quoted two chains because I like two chains. Yeah. I don't know how many tennis fans know, but if I get one person that connects with it, I feel like that's a win. So I was quoting two chains one day, Borat another day, Drake a third day, you name Toto, I mean, like, you name it. I just, I was just doing what, I thought was fun in the moment and it was going to provide a little bit of levity to the middle moments of a mundane point or whatever it might be. So that's, that's my mentality is if I can connect with one person anytime I'm on the air, then I've done my job. I mean, that's well put too, because you connect with one person who, who recognizes what you said and then it's like, Oh, then that's my broadcaster right there. Like he, he connects with me as opposed to like the general audience just being like, Oh, I can't believe he said that or that. It's like, for the most part, it's just people on Twitter just, like, who think that they could do a better job or, like, they think it's an easy job, which it isn't at all, you know? No, Twitter is, while it's a fantastic place, it's also the worst place. Yeah. Because you've got both sides of the spectrum where it's it's great to get information quickly. It's great for memes or whatever else. But at the same time, it gives people a faceless platform. And we've got so many of those now. And that's something my dad has talked to me about. He didn't really have to deal with to that level. Sure, when he was starting, people would write letters in if they wanted their opinions to be known. And people would do that because for some reason, people feel the need yeah. to get their opinions out. But now it's so much easier. It takes seconds. You can be on your couch in your mom's basement and you could be tweeting, no eagle sucks. Like, Okay, cool. I'm just going to keep doing what got me to this point and hope that it's enough to, to keep moving forward. I know. Like, like that's just insecure on their part, right? That's how I, how I always looked at it. Yeah. Did you, so at 22 years old, you're, you're getting now 23, but at 22 when you, you first start out with the Clippers, because your dad started young too, like 20, 24, 25 years old, like in that retrospect, yeah. like did he give you yeah. advice early on because of that? Tell you well to give the perspective, he so he first started at WFAM behind the scenes running the board and eventually got on the air within a year or so. So he was he actually was young when he graduated college. He was twenty one, so he didn't turn twenty two until months after he graduated. So he got a little bit of a jump start that way, and eventually he got the next job at twenty four into twenty five. So he's been doing that. Now it's going to be his 27th year doing the now Brooklyn Nets. It was obviously New Jersey Nets. And yeah, he started basically around the same age that I am right now. So does it provide almost a little bit more of, okay, yeah, you see, this isn't, it's not that far-fetched. Yeah, a little bit. I'm not the first person who's ever done this. I'm just the most recent person who's done this at the young age. And it, to me, one of the most important parts of doing well at this job is to prove, okay, young people can 
take the reins and let's say when there is an opening, maybe we should be looking at young people and seeing if there's somebody who can who can be that for us. I'm just hoping to do a good enough job where it proves, yeah, we can trust somebody at that age if it's the right person. Yeah. And hopefully I've done that in year one and I'm going to look to continue to build on it in year two. But it provided a little sense of, yeah, I'm not the only one when I remembered, okay, he, he did the same thing and look at where he's turned out. It, it, it looks like it turned out just fine. Right. And again, you kind of growing up around that scene, uh, having a, a dad in the industry, uh, now going through the industry, you have your time at Syracuse, you get the gig with the Clippers, and then earlier this year, you actually got to do a broadcast with them. Because that, that's kind of like a, a rare feat. You're kind of in a rare boat there. Like, what's it like doing a broadcast with your dad? It, right. So, yeah, we were we were calling the game for separate outlets, but we got to, we had him on the pregame like, uh, show. Yeah. Right. We had him on the pregame show, which I had been hosting a decent amount on the road, the pre and post for the Clippers on TV. And so it was me, Chauncey Billups, yeah. and my dad. And I'd grown close to Chauncey this year, and he's a great dude, and he made it that much better for us. He was really great in the middle of us. We called it a, almost a Billups sandwich or an Eagle sandwich. I'm not really sure because technically I, everyone was saying it's an Eagle sandwich, but I'm saying no because you wouldn't call it bread it's sandwich. the base of the sandwich. Right. You, if it's a bologna in the middle, it's not a, a bread sandwich. With bologna. Yeah. yeah, so I, I made that point. But – it was surreal. We had gotten the opportunity to do it when I was in college once. And I thought, we thought it was, oh, once in a lifetime opportunity. We didn't expect, certainly within two years, to have another chance. And it was just, especially given the circumstance, I grew up loving the NBA. I was a, an NBA junkie from a young, young age. When I say young, I mean like two, three years old. Yeah. When I was three years going into my dad's office and just paging through media guides of NBA teams and putting, trying to remember whatever I could. I couldn't even read, but I was just figuring it out as I went and looking at pictures or whatever it be. Like I was obsessed with the NBA at a young age. And so to do it at an NBA arena for an NBA game, that made it really, really special. It was really, really cool. Because that was how I knew my dad growing up. Of course, I know I watched him when he did college basketball and all and all this stuff. But the Nets were the Nets, and that was always he was always known around the area as the Nets announcer. And now it, it's grown, and his profile has grown more as his career has gone on. But certainly early in my life, that was the case, and I was like one of the biggest Nets guys. And so while it wasn't a Nets game. To see him in that environment and to, to do something with him in that environment, it was Clippers against the, the Philadelphia 76ers in Philly. And my mom came. It was just it was a really cool moment. And so we got a chance. Actually, the last game before the shutdown for the Clippers yeah. was against the Warriors. And he did that game, too. So we didn't do anything special for that one. But it's just cool now every time we're on the same call, on the same game. And I think it'll always be special. It's just different. Wow. So that first segment that you guys did on, on Fox Sports, was it laid back? Was it like, okay, now, like, as soon as the cameras are on, he, he's Ian Eagle and he's the broadcaster? Or were you guys able to have a lot of fun with it? <laughs> no, we had, we had fun at least for the first half. We yeah. had discussed, I discussed with, with our producer what, what it should look like. She was asking me, well, what do you think? And I said, eh, well, we should have some fun first and then do this. She said, yeah, I agree. And so she actually took the initiative 
and eventually got pictures for my mom of me younger in some broadcasting environments with my dad. And that was cool. So they put those up and we just reacted to them very casually. And then eventually we talked about the game because it was an interesting game at the time. The Sixers were still playing pretty, pretty well. This was just before the all-star break. They were the best team right with Miami, at least at the time, in terms of home record. They were dominant at home. So we had some talking points, and that game was the game that Brett Brown had benched Al Horford as well. So my dad had gotten that inside info, so he almost brought it to us, so to speak, in terms of breaking news, I guess, if you will. It wasn't quite breaking, but you get the point. And so we had a, a little bit of a combination of the two where we were joking around, but at the same time we were getting ready for the game, which is the perfect blend. Wow. And was basketball always your, your number? I mean, you just said it was your number one, but like that was what your focus was uh, in school, at least at Syracuse. I, I mean, growing up like big basketball fan, uh, Mets fan, I'm, I'm sure in the, the New Jersey area uh, was basketball always the number one. Like, did like, if you got a baseball gig, would you take it? Like, if- um, I'm not sure. I, I actually, the baseball thing was always interesting to me where, I grew up loving baseball as well. Uh, To answer the question initially, I guess, basketball has always been my biggest love. Right. Most knowledge. Absolutely. And it's not even close. I mean, I've loved the NBA from a young, young age, a passion for the NBA from a young, young age. And so with that passion comes that knowledge because you're so invested in it. And so I could go back and name so many random facts about the league and about teams and players. And for some reason, I just always was infatuated with it from a young age and partially because my dad was around it consistently, but partially because I just always loved the game of basketball and I love the NBA game in particular. Sure. I still enjoy college basketball, but it's a different animal altogether. It's a different level, obviously altogether. And there's something about an NBA basketball game that just, entices me it always has and so yes that if i always had a choice of if i could only do one sport it would always be basketball but i love football i love baseball i try to get a little more into hockey as i got a little older um obviously tennis and i try to be as well versed as possible but yeah to answer your question and i had an opportunity to either intern or do baseball during the summer i chose to intern I, it's not that I, I don't like baseball as a game. It was just more so I didn't see myself getting up every morning and, and doing it every single day. I didn't feel that there was enough of a passion and I didn't want to take somebody's spot that did have that passion. And so the way I looked at it is give it to somebody who's going to appreciate that time and that, that feeling and, and wants to smell the, the fresh cut grass and the diamond just after it's been hosed down a little bit and, and ranked through. I didn't need that as much. And so I felt that was, it was better for me to go and and see a different side of the business. I was somebody who going into school said, try everything. And I did, I I wanted to try not just sports, but non-sports. So news and in most in particular morning news, which I really enjoyed. I love entertainment. I love television, movies, music, pop culture. So all that stuff really piques my interest still does to this day. I want, I try to watch almost everything as much as I possibly can. And I've done a good job of that during the pandemic because I've had much more time, obviously, to really catch up. So I feel good about my, my current position of where I am 
in terms of the television movie side of things. But my point is, I went in there saying, try everything. And that means that side, but it also means every sport. So I tried basketball, football, sure, soccer, lacrosse. I did field hockey stuff at one point, the tennis stuff. I did some at Syracuse. So trying all that and not just doing play-by-play, but hosting or sideline reporting. I wanted to get a good sense before I left what what gets me going the most? Right. What am I most excited to do? And I don't know if I have one answer. I like doing a little bit of everything. And if I can do a little bit of everything for the rest of my life, I think I'll be happy. And you talked a little bit about like knowing as much pop culture, like you said, whether it's film, music, uh, from multiple different eras. And this is kind of the thing I wanted to leave you with because I don't want to take too much of your time here. But the uh, you being the radio voice of the Clippers, like you're rep- you're representing the organization in a way, and you being as young as you are, 22, 23 years old, like you, you are literally half the age of some of these guys. You know, Doc Rivers from a season ago, uh, you mentioned the owner earlier. Like, how how have you been able to kind of uh, gel with some of these guys, not only to like gain their trust, obviously, with the broadcast and what you say on the air and what you say off the air and building relationships, but how have you been able to communicate and connect with them on that level, given that, again, you are probably the runt of the litter, one of the youngest guys there, uh, at least from the journalism standpoint? Yeah, and no, I, I was the youngest person there yeah. last year, and I, I probably will still be the youngest person there this year. That was the joke that was made. It's my birthday. <laughs> Yeah. We're, we're on the road for my birthday this year. And so I was turning 23, obviously. And somebody on the team plane was like, oh, congratulations on still being the youngest one here. It's like, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, but that was one of my selling points, Jack, in, in the interview process was I'm sure at the time I said, sure, I'm 22, but I'm an old soul. I, yeah. as you just heard me say, I can quote Toto. I can, yeah. I, I love the eighties. I love the seventies. Uh, so I can go deep in my knowledge of pop culture and movies and television. So I, I think the example I used in the interview was coming to America, which I had watched for the 200th time just before my interview it was just on. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And it takes wow. place close where my dad grew up in Queens and I love Eddie Murphy. And so I could watch that movie over and over and over again. And so my point was, I I can quote this and connect with somebody who's 55, and then I can quote something from Drake's newest song and connect with somebody who's 25. That's that's a strength for me. I feel like I can connect with people of all ages, and that's something that I had always had an innate ability, I guess, to do, was find common ground with anybody. And I feel confident that I could do that. And so that's what I did. And the one thing I would say that really helps is for me, I didn't want to force any relationships. Uh, I had heard someone, I think Joe Davis said, be seen, not heard in terms of around the players and the coaches and everything. So I was seen and they saw the work I was putting in. They saw I was diligent about coming to practice and shoot around and all that type of stuff. They saw I was diligent about my note taking. And eventually I allowed those, those relationships to happen organically and things that helped were once Doc got comfortable with me because I was talking to Doc before every game. And so I could talk to him about a variety of topics and not just in sports, but politics and obviously pop culture and music or whatever it might be. And so once he got comfortable with me, players started seeing that he was comfortable with me. Sam Cassell is one of our assistant coaches and he recognized me because he actually played for the Nets when my dad, of course, was broadcasting the Nets. And so he got to do my dad. He got to know my dad very well. And it was, when my dad was working with Bill Raftery. And so he came back on the first flight we had this year 
And he looked at me, he goes, no Eagle. I was like, yeah. He said, man, your dad, Bill Raftery, they some crazy and I'll leave it there. That's, that's all I'll say. But he said, you like them? I go, yes. Yeah. I'm like them. He goes, all right. And so now he likes me to the point where every time I'd be walking by, he'll, he'll scream out my name because that's how he is. He's yeah. very eccentric, very uh, energized, effervescent. And he's one of my favorite people on the face of the planet. But it got to the point where he's sitting down having a discussion with Paul George and I walk past and he literally mid conversation, mid sentence, he had like eagle eyes. It was crazy. Hawkeyes. He just turned. <laughs> and I'm Paul George is like, what? But now PG sees me and he goes, okay, yes, yeah, cool with him. So eventually that helped. The other thing that really helped me was the Clippers had me do after a, a number of home games that we had this past year, they had me do a Q and a session with some of our players in front of VIP season ticket holders. And so about a hundred or so people would stay after the game and we would get one of our players sit down and for 25, 30 minutes, we would just chat back and forth. So everybody could get to know the player a little bit more, not just what they're like on the court, but what they're like in life in general. And so that allowed me to get to know some of these guys a little bit more because I'm sitting down and really just chatting with them and they're just discussing with me. And so again, now they recognize me later, or let's say for a guy like Kawhi, who's to himself and likes his, his space, I got pretty close and comfortable with his personal strength trainer because he lives in my apartment building. And so I could have never predicted that. I never was saying to myself, well, what if Kawhi's strength coach lives in my, my apartment building? I should choose this one because I have a, I have a weird feeling that that's going to be the case. No, it just kind of happened naturally, organically. And so Kawhi sees me with him. Again, he associates, okay, yeah, he's cool. So that that's kind of what happened. But other than that, just be yourself. There's a, in my opinion, at least the way I was looking at the situation with this team was there's a reason that they chose you. So go do all the things that you said you were going to do. Go be the person that you showed you are and things will work out in your favor. And so, so far, so good. we'll see. I'll have to update you on year two. Oh, I mean, so what kind of, how are you able to connect with them? Like, like you just said, with like pop culture stuff, you mentioned some of the, the, the movie lines, what kind of music do you listen to? Like 60s? Anything, I, live, I listen to anything but country music, Jack. And I'm sorry if you're a big country fan, but I, uh, we are in the same, okay. I got my Foo Fighters tapestry right here. Uh, See, Foo Fighters to me, it's hard to say that they're underrated because of how successful they've been, but I, I've always found them to be somewhat underrated with our age group. Oh, yeah. Our age group. They're they, just obviously SNL, but I'm a huge Foo Fighters guy. They are the stereotypical dad band. Them and Pearl Jam have always been the stereotypical dad band to people oh, are. Listen to the pretend, if you listen to the Pretender, you can't say that to me. You can't say, I know. listen to Best of You, you can't say that. You can't say that. So that's that's the way I look at them. I uh, love the foos, man. Well, well, thanks so much for taking the last hour out of your day to talk to me. I, I, I love picking your brain about your story, your broadcast career. Again, 23 years old, you still got uh, your whole life ahead of you in, in the business, and I'll definitely be back in touch to see how year two went. Oh, Jack, I appreciate it. Glad that we can make this happen, and uh, be good, man. We got to we gotta stay together. Our, our New Jerseyans out over in the coast area we've got to we've got to stick together because you like to dominate the broadcast industry as a whole oh, at least on stat.com that we, we definitely we had, we had like electoral college representation within the broadcast industry yeah new jersey would be would be california level 
I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's totally gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Shitty use tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.